Welcome to the Fixing Healthcare Podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Jeremy Kaur, also host of the Populating Books and Medicine Podcast and CEO of Executive Podcast Solutions. With me is Dr. Robert Pearl. For 18 years, Robert was a CEO of the Permanente Group, the nation's largest physician group. He is currently a Forbes contributor, a professor at both the Stanford University School of Medicine and Business, and author of the best-selling books, Mistreated, Why We Think We're Getting Good Healthcare and Why We're Usually Wrong, and Uncaring, How the Culture of Medicine Kills Doctors and Patients. All profits go to Doctors Without Borders. If you want information on a broad range of topics, you can visit his website, robertpearlmd.com. Robbie, our first episode of this current season nine with Dorothy Community, the director of the bioethics programs at Santa Clara University, generated a mass amount of listener interest. The topic of end of life decisions struck a chord with folks and several referenced your most recent book, Uncaring. As we told listeners last week, for the holidays, we'll be giving them a treat by having you read a chapter for each week from that book on the subject. The contrast between what David decided in last week's story and Hunter chose in this week's highlights the impossibility of there being just one right answer. Robbie, let's hear Hunter's story. I first met Hunter at an event in Washington, D.C. Though barely out of high school, she was composed, articulate, and mature beyond her years. Speaking to hundreds of policy experts, and physicians about her experience as a patient, it didn't seem to phase her in the least. Bubbly and precocious, Hunter was every parent's dream and every teacher's ideal student. By age 14, she had already enrolled in classes at the local college to augment her regular course schedule. She played soccer, softball, and basketball, and started running track in high school. She was on the swim team, she even tried cheerleading. But that wasn't your cup of tea, says Maria, her mother, to which Hunter replies, yeah, dance, I hated that. I'm sitting across from the two of them inside of a cramped library nook on the campus of Marywood University in Scranton, Pennsylvania, not far from Hunter's home. We're no more than a few minutes into our discussion when it becomes clear to me that Maria is Hunter's biggest cheerleader, a lifelong supporter of her daughter's dreams. Maria is perpetually celebrating Hunter's scholastic accomplishments, both in high school and now at Marywood. She cheers on her sporting triumphs, her keen sense of style, and lest I forget, her volunteering efforts. Maria lists off Hunter's numerous charitable endeavors, like ingredients in a beloved family recipe, Cinderella's Closet, Marley's Mission, Jog for Jude, and Big Brother's Big Sisters. The mother points out that while most teenage girls are hanging out with friends or surfing social media, Hunter spends almost every free moment helping others. She describes her daughter with words like, amazing and beautiful and unstoppable. And to fully appreciate the significance of this mother's adoration, you have to understand what the two of them have been through. In September, 2015, Hunter helped organize a blood drive at her high school. The program was sponsored by Geisinger Health, 
a highly respected health system with facilities across Western Pennsylvania. Lots of students showed up to donate, including Hunter. It was her first time giving blood, and she, like me, was nervous of needles. At the pre-screening, Hunter winced as the nurse pricked her finger. The woman checked the reading and told Hunter she couldn't give blood, at least not that day. Another nurse handed her a brochure and sent her off. The next morning, when Maria asked about the blood drive, Hunter replied, I don't know. They pricked my finger. Something was a six. They gave me this stupid brochure presenting a pamphlet on iron deficiency anemia. Wait, Maria said, was it your hemoglobin? Your hemoglobin is a six? That's not normal. As a nurse herself, Maria knew that anemia in teenage girls is most often the results of menstruation or poor diet. But Hunter's hemoglobin reading was less than half a normal measurement. Not knowing what to make of it, Maria drove her daughter to the primary care doctor for further testing. He did a full evaluation, including checking her stool for blood. That's how we found out about the colon cancer, says Hunter. It wasn't the last of the bad news either. As part of our preoperative evaluation, the doctors uncovered another problem. Maria got a call the next day while driving. The pediatric neurosurgeon told me I needed to pull over to the side of the road. I thought, oh God, no, this is not good. And that's when he told me she's got a second tumor. She's got a brain tumor. I just remember screaming and crying outside the car. I didn't know how I was going to tell Hunter. That night, the mother and daughter sat down on Hunter's bed, held each other and cried, but for only a moment. With stunning resolve and acceptance, Hunter got up off the mattress, got in the shower, got a bag packed and got in the car with her mother heading to the Geisinger Hospital in Danville. There, a neurosurgeon would drill a hole through Hunter's skull to determine whether the tumor was malignant. It was. Maria remembers thinking in that moment that she was so proud of her fearless daughter. She's also deeply thankful for Hunter's love. You know, Hunter said to me early on, very early on, before the brain tumor was even discovered, she said, you know, mom, there's nothing we can't do if we do it together. We can get through this no matter what. For the next two years, Maria put most of her life on hold to take care of her daughter. They spent nights on the bathroom floor when Hunter was sick from chemotherapy. They made every medical appointment together. Maria kept the house looking impeccable while making sure there was always a home-cooked meal on the table. She went on a liquid diet with Hunter whenever Hunter was due for a colonoscopy. They were brave for each other and unbreakable together. Despite their courage, the surgeries Hunter needed all carried incredibly high risks. The brain surgery, if she chose to go forward with it, would last more than seven hours and was rife with possible side effects, including paralysis and severe cognitive damage. Hunter, the multi-sport athlete and ACE student, was in danger of losing all motor functioning and regressing to the mental state of a child. At the hospital, the neurosurgeon, Dr. Marco, 
was keen to put the mother and daughter at ease. This is easy peasy, he reassured them, pointing at Hunter's brain MRI. I'm gonna crack the bony plate right here, peel it back and pluck the tumor right out. Walking out of the surgeon's office, Maria's sister turned to her and she turned to Hunter and said, I don't know if we, I like this doctor. Maria disagreed. I love him. I want someone with that kind of confidence operating on my child. This kind of bravado is not only common, but essential for surgeons, particularly neurosurgeons. They know that the slightest error can cause disability or death. Confidence is required to go forward, even when the odds are long. The alternative, doubt, leads to mistakes. For Hunter and her mom, the surgeon's confidence lifted their spirits and fortunately proved well-earned. After seven hours of intensive surgery, out came Hunter's brain tumor. Next, a different set of doctors set their sights on the young woman's colon cancer. Here, the decisions involved were just as complex. Based on her colonoscopy, Hunter had hundreds of polyps, which were overgrowths in the lining of the large intestine. The polyps extended from the intersection of her small and large intestine up, across, and down her colon, then throughout the rectum. These overgrowths lined her entire large intestine, each of them at risk of becoming cancerous. With high odds that one or more of them would become malignant, the best treatment was removing the entire large intestine all the way to the end. The problem with this course of treatment is that it would leave Hunter with an ileostomy. That is, the end of her small intestine would be sewn to her skin. For the rest of her life, she would need to wear a bag to collect her feces and periodically empty its contents into a toilet. The alternative, leaving in the rectum, put Hunter at risk of developing aggressive malignant cancer, capable of spreading throughout the rest of her body, killing her. Without hesitation or doubt, the physician encouraged her to proceed with a complete resection. As doctors see it, having an ileostomy bag isn't a big deal. In fact, compared to the heightened risk of dying from colon cancer, there's only one right answer. That's not how 17-year-old Hunter saw it. In her eyes, the right answer involved going to college and meeting boys without an ileostomy bag in tow. Hunter decided the doctors would need to leave her rectum intact. How did they respond, I asked. My doctors agreed with me, she replied. They were fine with it. Marie interjects with a minor correction. You didn't give them an option. Yeah, I guess I didn't really, Hunter says, as the two of them share a laugh. So with Hunter's mind made up and with Maria's reluctant support, the surgeon performed a colectomy, preserving the rectum to maintain bowel continence. Just enough so that I wouldn't have to have a bag, Hunter adds. Maria explains Hunter's decision by telling me about her great aunt, who at the age of 92 was diagnosed with ovarian cancer. The malignancy was discovered because of a bowel obstruction. After surgery, the elderly woman walked around the house with her colostomy bag visible, collecting her feces until it was full. If you were to search Google images for colostomy bag, you might be surprised by what you'd find. A collection of photos featuring fit and attractive people proudly displaying colostomy 
pouches on their waists. This ostomy awareness movement is meant to destigmatize the bags. But as Hunter sat across from her physicians, listening to them explain both the recommended surgery and the resulting ileostomy, she wasn't thinking about becoming the internet's next body positive model. She was thinking about her great aunt's colostomy bag and how it would be perceived by future men in her life. Though she understood the dangers of a partial procedure, an ileostomy wasn't an outcome she could accept. Believe me, we talked about it, Maria says. The doctors begged and pleaded, but Hunter never wavered. She just said, nope, I'm not doing it. I will not do it. I'm both charmed and stricken by this young woman's decisiveness. And I'm certain that her surgeon would disagree with Hunter's account of the story. I doubt any of the doctors were fine with her decision. Most physicians would call her choice poor if they were being polite and stupid if they were being honest. A generation or two ago, the parents of the surgeon would have agreed to do what was best medically without regard for the child's preference. No one would have asked Hunter about her wishes or considered how the procedure might affect her social life. And after the procedure, when the pathologist declared all the polyps benign, everyone would agree the procedure was a great success. Many surgeons still believe such a decision shouldn't be left up to a 17-year-old girl. But the days of doctor knows best are disappearing from view. Patients today, especially younger ones like Hunter, feel emboldened to question and challenge their doctor's judgment. Rather than having to comply with a treatment plan, they feel of the right to decide whether or not to adhere to the physician's recommendations. Patients expect more control and the right to make so-called stupid decisions. The role of the physician is therefore being reshaped from that of absolute authority to more of a healthcare partner, someone who serves as a helpful source of information, but is not the ultimate decider. This reflects a massive change in social expectations. Patients now realize they're the ones taking all the clinical risks, and they're the ones who have to live with the complications. In physician culture, decisions like Hunter's are cause for concern. Doing only a portion of the recommended surgery not only puts the patient at risk of harm, but puts the surgeon at risk too. Hunter's unilateral choice forced their doctors to practice what they believed to be bad medicine. Had she consented to the surgery they recommended, the physicians would no longer have to worry about the polyps becoming malignant and spreading. But by leaving the rectum intact, the doctor would be criticized should Hunter later be diagnosed with cancer. Legally, the final decision is always the patient's. Culturally, however, it's considered the doctor's duty to steer people toward the right conclusion. When patients choose wrong, it's seen as the physician's failure. For now, it seems Hunter made the right choice for her. At the time of this book's publication, she had been in remission for nearly four years. At 18, she created her own non nonprofit, the Hope for Hunter Fund, to give, quotes, chemo-cozy jackets to pediatric oncology patients going through chemotherapy. She graduated from Marywood University with two bachelor's degrees, 
majoring in information security and computer science, as well as minoring in mathematics and Spanish, all in just three and a half years. Following college, she got an internship at Geisinger as a data analyst and visited often with the doctors who helped her through her illness. Hunter began graduate school in the fall of 2020. Her mother, Maria, remains her daughter's biggest fan. Like a shadow, death accompanies doctors everywhere they go. It's a constant companion, looming over every choice they make and every patient they treat. A decade of training teaches physicians to repress and deny their fears. But death is never fully out of the doctor's sight or mind. For the oncologist and the pathologist, death is an ever-present player, always commanding the spotlight. The radiologist sees death around every corner, worrying that a seemingly innocuous spot on a mammogram might, in fact, be malignant. The psychiatrist's death peers from behind the curtain at night, casting doubt as to whether a patient seen today might die from suicide tomorrow. I met death on my first day as a medical student. Inside the laboratory for Anatomy 101, my lab partner and I stood nervously above a cadaver who in the weeks ahead would teach us the organs, bones, muscles, blood vessels, and nerves of the human body. I can still remember the smell of formaldehyde piercing my nostrils and my lungs as we dissected the corpse. All medical students participate in this ritual and get to know this odor well. It's their first exposure to the smell of death. During my clinical years, I learned to detect the other odors of death, the ammonia-like aroma of liver failure and the ironically sweet stink of diabetes with associated ketoacidosis. Each new whiff expanded my olfactory abilities. Professors teach their students to identify these smells so they can diagnose the problem, intervene sooner, and prevent further harm. Doctors vow to battle and water off death's rank and rotting odor for as long as possible. Like the Knights of the Round Table, their quest is valiant and true. But alas, death comes for all of us. Physician culture is nothing if not consistent when it comes to matters of life and death. It provides a two-dimensional view of the world. For centuries, doctors have upheld their oath to sustain life no matter the price. This crispness and cleanliness to this mindset that has for centuries allowed doctors to bypass any moral or ethical ambiguity about what to do for patients who are nearing the end. When it's your job to save a life at any cost, medical decisions are relatively easy. You don't hesitate to slash open the throat to establish an airway or crack open a chest and reach inside to massage an idle heart. The stories of David and Hunter teach us that the relationship between the doctor and death has become impossibly complex. Physicians feel overwhelmed. Emotion-filled conversations with patients and their families compete for time with piles of paperwork and administrative demands. Physicians find it hard enough to accurately diagnose problems and prescribe effective treatments. 
having to contemplate medicine's mounting ethical gray areas on top of it all feels impossible. Doctors are ill-prepared for the newest challenges presented by life and death. They weren't taught to help a sick patient die peacefully. They never learned to stand idly by while a child perishes or to let a teenager put her own life at risk. As doctors face a crisis of uncertainty, the physician culture they inherited offers little help. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and we'll tell your friends and colleagues about it. Please follow Fixing Healthcare on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. If you like the show, please rate it five stars and leave a review. Visit our website at fixinghealthcarepodcast.com and follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter at Fixing HC Podcast. Thank you for listening to Fixing Healthcare, Breaking the Rules with Dr. Robert Pearl and Jeremy Kaur. Have a great day.